Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you, New City. My name is Heath, if we have not had the chance to meet yet. Also, uh, just real quick before we dive into the text, uh, New City Angel Tree, it's out there in the lobby. Feel free to purchase a few or several gifts. Uh, Sign up on the Sign Up Genius that's there. You'll get a reminder. Uh, You bring back each gift unwrapped with its label by the 22nd. Any questions, uh, feel free to email the city team leader, Jacob Boucher. So, uh, yeah, I just want to remind you that we have that going on uh, all this month as well. Um, this morning, I want to ask you all a question. What does a childless, twice-widowed young woman who prostitutes herself to her father-in-law have to do with Advent? What does a childless, twice-widowed young woman who prostitutes herself to her father-in-law have to do with Advent? What does this story of Tamar teach us? That's a question we're going to be asking as we're diving into this Advent series, The Mothers of Jesus. And throughout this month, we are are kind of zooming in on Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. And in that genealogy, you see that there are five women whose names are mentioned in Jesus's family tree. So each week, we're going to be asking and considering the lives of these women and ask, well, what what does their life, what does their story have to do with Advent? What does it have to do with Christmas? What does it teach us this morning? So let me go ahead and read our text for us. Uh, We'll look at Matthew chapter 1. Just going to read the first three verses for you. And then uh, I will read our text that we'll be kind of focusing in this morning from Genesis 38. So the gospel according to Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. And now in Genesis 38, the story of Tamar, beginning in verse 11. This is picking up uh, mid-story, mid-chapter almost. So, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Tinmah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hurrah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tinmah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Tinmah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she, Tamar, replied, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And Judah answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? 
She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat to his friend, the, uh, by his friend the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is this cult prostitute who is at Enum at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out first. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And after his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let me go ahead and and pray before we dive in. Father in heaven, God, we thank you, Lord, for this Advent season. We thank you, Lord, that this Advent season is an opportunity for us to turn our hearts to the expectation and to the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Savior to this world for us. So, Father, would you illuminate the scriptures for us this morning. Would you help us to understand them with our mind, with our heart, God? And would you, by your spirit, empower us to live in obedience to what you call us to do through your word this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so who is Tamar? We're going to ask that question first of the text. So who is Tamar? Now, Tamar is married into the father, the the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah has these three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. You see, in 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 chapter 38, verse 7, it says that she is married to Ur, and yet Ur was a wicked man, so the Lord had put him to death. And then there was something called during this time called the, the Leverett Law. And the Leverett Law stated, it, it sounds kind of crazy and weird to us, but the Leverett Law stated that it, it required one brother to marry his brother's widow and to give to her children if she were childless. So then Onan, Judah's second son, is given to Tamar in marriage to fulfill the Leverett Law, but Onan is wicked as well, and the Lord puts him to death. So here is Tamar, this childless, twice-widowed woman, 
who Ur was put to death by the Lord, and, and Onan was wicked as well. Here she is, vulnerable, destitute, and she was supposed to be given to, to, to Shelah, yet Shelah at this time wasn't old enough to be given to her in marriage. That's why Judah says, return to your father's house and wait. And the Leverett Law, it might seem kind of crazy or just very strange to us, but we know that the, Leverett, that the laws that are given to us in Scripture, we can trace them back to the heart of God and the Leverett Law reflect the heart of God in his, his, his desire and his ability, God's desire and ability to protect the vulnerable. So the Leverett Law wasn't only about carrying on this lineage of a dead brother, but widows, they were some of the most marginalized persons that, that, that you can imagine. They were some of the most marginalized people that you can be. And, and Tamar, now twice widowed, and childless, this was a sentence to, to be destitute the rest of her life. So then there's Judah. So we covered Tamar a little bit, and now here's, here's Judah. Who is Judah? Judah is Jacob's fourth son. If you recall your Old Testament, if you recall the 12 tribes of Israel, you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph and Benjamin, the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah was Jacob's fourth son. And perhaps it's, it's no hyperbole to state that Judah was part of the family, the family that was most familiar with the promises of God more than any other family that walked the earth, that Abraham was Judah's great-grandfather. And here, in our text, it's Judah's responsibility to ensure that Tamar is taken care of, that the Leverett Law applies to her, and that Judah does his job to give to Tamar Shelah when he is of age. And yet, verse 11, he, he says this. He says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, verse 11, it gives us this kind of picture, this window into what's going on inside Judah, what's going on in Judah's heart. And the text said that he, he feared. Judah feared that like his other two sons, his youngest, who was supposed to be given to Tamar, would also die. Judah is blaming Tamar for the death of his two sons. His two sons, which the text says they died because of their own wickedness. Judah is fearful, and he is, he is putting all of this, he's putting all of their son, his son's wickedness on Tamar. And he says, mm, you know, nah, there's no way I'm giving you my third and final son. So Judah, he abandons his responsibility. He abandons his, he abandons his daughter-in-law. He abandons Tamar. And now, just hang on. This is when things get interesting. So get ready. It's not, not exactly G-rated, but this is what Tamar, this is Tamar's plan. This is what she decides to do. After some time, the story tells us that Judah's wife dies. After mourning, Judah travels to 
to, to uh, Timnah, this Canaanite sheep shearing festival. If you've ever been, never been to one, you should go. They're fun. Just kidding. But so Judah, he travels to this, this sheep shearing uh, festival. And in verse 13, it says that Tamar catches wind that Judah is making this trek. And in verse 14, listen to her plan. Listen to just the action and the, and the sequence that Tamar takes. It says that she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar disguises herself she, and she offers herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law, to Judah. And Judah doesn't know that this is Tamar. She is disguised. So she offers herself as a prostitute, but Judah doesn't have any payment. So he says, I will send to you a young goat. And Tamar is like, how do I know that you're going to do that? So what Judah says is, I will give you a pledge. I will give you my signet, my cord, and my staff. So a signet and a cord, it was, it was only something that the wealthy and the well-to-do would have owned at this time. It was this kind of small cylinder that hung around a cord, kind of like a necklace around a man's neck. And the signet, it, was, it would have contained this, this seal, like this family seal that was very personalized. And the staff, it, it would have been very personalized as well. It was the equivalent, Judah gave to Tamar the equivalent of what we would do today with our, our social security and our license. It was, it was personalized. It was his. And he gave it to her as a pledge that payment will come. And really... The crux of the text is what happens in verse 24 and 26. We see this, this short dialogue and exchange between Judah and Tamar. And in verse 24, you can only hide a pregnancy for so long. And the story says that Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, that she has been immoral. And what's Judah's reaction? What's Judah's reaction? In verse 24, this is Judah's reaction. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Bring her out and let her be burned. I mean, Judah is furious. He is livid. He is, he is irate. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. And during that time, you only burned, people that only were, were burned, we're, we're guilty of committing the most heinous, the most disgusting crime. Yet Judas says, bring her out and let her be burned. And even in, in the Hebrew, it's two words. It's take and burn. So you can just see with just the vengeance that Judah has for Tamar, blaming Tamar, possibly justifying and, and shifting blame and saying, Tamar, it's your fault. And all the while neglecting his role as a father to raise up his sons. So he gives her this death sentence, take and burn. And as Tamar is being dragged out to be burned, you know what she does? She pulls out the signet, the cord, and the staff, and she says, by the man to whom these belong to, I am pregnant. She says, recognize these, Judah? Do you recognize these? They're yours. They're yours. I mean, can you imagine 
the public humiliation of Judah. The public humiliation of being outed in front of everybody because she was being brought out of the house. The humiliation of, of Judah just being laid absolutely bare. Absolutely broken on the floor. Recognize these, Judah? They're yours. They belong to you. In which Judah says in verse 26, this confession, she is more righteous than I. She, Tamar, is more righteous than I. It's this confession from brokenness that Judah has reached this breaking point and he no longer excuses his sin. He doesn't try to cover it up or sweep it under the rug or, or minimize it, but he says, she is more righteous than I. I am guilty. I did this. I am not as good as I thought. Judah is absolutely laid bare. His heart is exposed. He is broken on the floor. And the story concludes by explaining that, that Tamar would give birth to twins, in which Judah is the father, twins named Perez and Zerah. And through the line of Perez will come the Messiah. Friends, this is the model Christian family, right? No, I say that kind of obviously joking, but I think what is just so so beautiful about this text, what is so beautiful about the story of Judah and Tamar is that, and we see this all throughout the scriptures, is that their failures are not omitted from the pages of scripture. That their failures are not cut out from the pages of Scripture, trying to paint people in this portrait that is not actually reality. We see this text that shows just how great the sin of Judah is. Both Judah and Tamar sinned. We see great sin in this text, but we also see that the grace of the Savior is greater. That he the grace of the Savior is greater. It's this, this beautiful story. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit more. How does this text make sense for us today? What do we learn from this text? And we, uh, the first thing, we, we, learn, we learn just how dangerous it is, the lens through which Judah navigates the world, that there is great danger from, from, from how Judah approaches and navigates the world. He has this, this pride and this self-righteousness that, that just allows him to, to look down on others. It's kind of this I am better than you attitude. And you just kind of see it just like, right? It's just spilling out like all throughout this text. You see it in, in how he, he talks and how he acts and, and how he lives. This, this pride just kind of spills out just thinking that he's, that he's better than others. And you see this come out in a double standard. The text talks about this double standard. This, this standard to which Judah places on others is higher than the standard he asks himself to live to. We see this, this double standard in which Judah doesn't really care or have much concern about his sexual ethics, does he? He doesn't. And yet when Tamar has been immoral, he says, take, burn. 
We see this double standard through which Judah is operating and living in this world, that he is holding Tamar to this higher standard than he holds himself. So we see this clearly in the text. We also see injustice. We see injustice in this text. We see the danger through which Judah navigates the world. It leads him to do injustice. And that Judah, he neglected his responsibility to take care and to provide for Tamar. He sentences Tamar in depriving her of her rights, depriving her of inclusion, depriving her of well-being, depriving her of being a functioning member in that community, He deprives her of all of this and sentences her to this this dead-end life. He doesn't give to Tamar what is rightfully hers, what she is rightfully due. And then Judah, he has, is in this position of, of power and authority, and yet he neglects, neglects to follow through, neglects to live faithfully and to care for his daughter in law, who's mourning the loss of of two husbands. And you know what is so interesting about Judah's confession? Judah's confession in verse 26, when he says that she is more righteous than I, do you know what is so interesting about that confession is that Judah says that Tamar is more righteous. Judah says that Tamar is more righteous. He does not say that she is completely righteous. What Tamar did was wrong. She deceived. She offered herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law. We can all agree that that we don't do those things, that Tamar was wrong. But in Judah's confession, this is what is so fascinating about the text, that where the text places the stress is right here. In Judah's confession, he says that Tamar is more righteous than he. Tamar did wrong. Tamar did wrong. But what I, Judah, did in sentencing her to a dead-end life and depriving a widow of her rights and depriving a widow of being included in the community, what I did was more wrong. Do you feel that? Do you feel, feel the weight of that? Do you feel the, the weight of what the text is stressing here in Judah's confession? That what Tamar did was wrong, but what I, Judah, did It was more wrong. I did the greater wrong here. I am guilty. I did the greater wrong here. And really, what we see if we kind of peel back this this section of Scripture is that Tamar, she's in pursuit of justice. Tamar is in pursuit of what is rightfully owed to her. Inclusion into the community, dignity and value and worth. That's what Tamar is in pursuit of. There's a, um, a uh, theologian, his name is uh, Walter Brueggemann, and I don't agree with everything that he says, but I, I found that, that this quote in particular was really helpful in trying to understand what this text is stressing. He says this, we have it up here on the screen. He says, the narrative contains a radical critique of social moralities. The text, it doesn't say that Tamar is innocent, but that she has committed the type of sin that people are quick to condemn, illicit sex that brings damage to a good family. But Judah is from the family of God. Judah is in the position of power and wealth, 
And when he abdicates his responsibility to provide for Tamar, the shock of the text is what is taken more seriously is not the violation of the sexual ethic, but the violation of damage done to the community in allowing the helpless to fall through the social fabric. This is the the lens in which Judah navigates the world of what what pride and self-righteousness can do. It can deceive us into thinking that that our sole responsibility is for me and for my nuclear family. It can deceive us into just allowing the marginalized to continue to remain nameless to us. But we don't know who they are. We don't know where they live. They remain nameless and invisible in our community. It deceives us also, pride also deceives us from from thinking that we are exempt from caring and being a participant in the social fabric in our community. And yet the burden of Christianity, the crux of Christianity, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's this duty, there's this obligation of the Christian, of the church, to see their well-being woven into a place, woven into the fabric of a community. This is what Jeremiah 29 talks about when he's, when he's giving instruction to the exiles who are living in an unfamiliar place, who are living in a place that they don't like, that they don't want to be. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Pray for it on its behalf, for as the city prospers, so Will you, that the church and the the followers of Jesus, we see our lives woven into and a necessary part of of the social fabric in our community. But the story of Judah, it's not over. That Judah's, this is not the last time we learn about Judah in the narrative of Genesis. And in Genesis 44, you might remember the scene, right? So, so just to back up a little bit, in Genesis 37, it is Judah, the instigator, that wants to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. He instigates that in Genesis 37. In Genesis 38, we have the text, we have our text. And then later in Genesis 44, you might remember the scene inside Joseph's house. And it's this scene in which the brothers are reunited with Joseph, and yet Joseph has disguised himself And Benjamin, the youngest, the the, the favorite of the father, Benjamin, is accused of stealing. The brothers don't know that Joseph, that this is Joseph. And what Joseph has decided to do, that he has given instructions to his servants to place this silver cup inside Benjamin's sack in order to frame and accuse him of theft. So this cup is placed in Benjamin's sack, and then the cup is, is found. And all the brothers in Judah are like, we didn't put that there. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. And yet Joseph threatens to hold on to Benjamin. And do you know what Judah does? Judah says to Joseph, he pleads for him. And he says that that he is willing to take the place of Benjamin. So that Benjamin can let, be let go. That Judah is willing to stand in the place and be enslaved to Joseph to pay the penalty for Benjamin and for what he's being accused of. We see Judah selflessly stepping up to the plate to offer himself in place of another, in place of his brother. 
And then in Genesis 49, Judah is also mentioned again. And as Jacob, Judah's dad, is, is passing, he pronounces blessing on all, the, all his 12 sons, the 12 tribes. In Genesis 41, it is, it is literally, literally just this story of, of, of Jacob pronouncing blessing on each of his sons. And he says this of Judah in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. That's the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. In other words, Jacob is saying and he is predicting that through Judah's family tree, that through Judah's lineage will come the great empire of David. And we all know from the empire of David will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who will bring even a greater kingdom than David. So the story of Judah, it is not over. In, in 44, we see him standing in place for another. We see, and in 49, we see that, that through Judah's line, through Judah's line will come the Messiah, will come the Savior of the world. And uh, last year, you may have uh, kind of saw this on the news. It was uh, this video uh, of rescue that just went viral. There was some millions of views within just a few uh, short minutes or short short days. But it was this video uh, of a man in Paris, and uh, the video kind of panned back out. And what you saw four stories up was this toddler dangling for his life from a balcony. Four stories up in this apartment complex was this little toddler hanging on for dear life. And you see the panic and the commotion down at the bottom. You see people trying to climb the fence. And then all of a sudden, out of the left side of the screen, you see this man, just just like Spider-Man, man. He just like climbed and scales the building in just a matter of what seemed like seconds. He reaches the balcony. He leans over, grabs the kid, and pulls him safety safely to the balcony that this man named Mamadou Gassama, he, he scaled four stories and to save a child's life, to pull him to safety. And I say all that because we can't have a Judah of Genesis 44 and Genesis 49 without also the Judah in Genesis 38 who says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. We can't have this transformation that we see in Judah's life in Genesis 44 and 49 without first this recognition that we have more in common with Judah than we like to admit. We can't have this transformation without this recognition that we, we were, or maybe we are that toddler dangling from the balcony in need of rescue, hanging on for your dear life, and yet being pulled and weighed down by our pride and by our besetting sins and our secrets. This pride that just seeps out and prevents us from asking for help, or this pride that, that allows us just to continue to just not extend mercy to, to people who need mercy. That there's no transformation without this recognition that we are or that we were at one time the toddler dangling from that balcony. And whether you're here today and you've been a Christian for 20 years or 
just a few. It was Jesus who came after you. It was Jesus who scaled that wooden cross. And in doing so for you, he pulled you to the safety of that balcony. That Jesus, he saved you from yourself. He saved you from the misery of hell. That he releases you from looking down on others. That the grace of God, it releases us from saying that I am better than you. That's what the grace of God does. It changes us. It it transforms us. We recall our great sin. We recall how we were once people in very great need. And it was Christ who bent down and picked us up. He pulled us to safety. So what does all of this have to do with Advent? Well, the Advent season, it, it reminds us of the Savior that we all need. It reminds us of the Savior who works in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our failures. It reminds us of of a Savior who does not work around and omit stories of scandal or stories of failure and sin, but the, the grace of God works through those stories. Advent reminds us of that. The grace of God works through stories of scandal, works through stories of failure. It shows us that great is the sin of Judah. The great is the sin in our life. And yet the grace of the Savior is greater. That God's grace is greater. And friends, when we remember what it's like to feel to be dangling we remember what it's like to be hanging on for dear life and being weighed down before we knew Christ. When we remember what that is like and for Christ to grip us by the arm and to pull us up, we begin to hold ourselves and others to the same standard. We begin to hold ourselves and others to the same standard. Often, right, when we're in arguments or conflicts with people, we hold the other person to the higher standard than we hold ourselves. And yet remembering the story of rescue allows us to hold one another to the same standard. When you remember what it's like to be dangling for Christ to to grip you, you'll begin to grow in your ability to be compassionate, to be merciful and long-suffering and patient with people because you remember how Christ met you in your time of need. And when you remember remember and recall on your story of salvation, It'll, it'll, it'll push you out to take risks. That the marginalized in our community will no longer be invisible to you. You will learn their names. You will hear their stories. You will, you will be their friend. And you'll be their friend, not from this posture of, I'm here to help and I'm here to save you, but this, this posture of a friend as a peer. Like, I want to get to know you. I want to be a friend. I remember reading something, and J.I. Packer said something that, that for, for Christians to, to continue to move forward in the mission of the church and sharing the gospel and personal evangelism, that they ought to pray for the gift of friendship. That's what he said, that we could be friends to the marginalized, that they will no longer be invisible to us, the widows, the elderly, the, the vulnerable in our community, those that are confined to nursing homes, the kids that are at risk in, within our district. They will, they will no longer be invisible to us. We'll learn their names. We'll hear their stories. We'll be their friend. And so the point of Genesis 38, the point of this text is not to be like Judah. And the point of this text, it's, it's not to be like Tamar. 
This text, it points us to the one who saw us dangling, who saw us hanging on for dear life and pulled us up. The text points us to the person of Christ who met us in our place of need. And when this grace grips you, when the grace of the Savior grips you, you will have courage to face yourself and you will have courage to fight for justice like Tamar, the first mother of Jesus. Let's pray.